This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Interpersonal disadvantages. Blackwater as a CIA front. The shyness barrier. And the arrest of Pope Pius VI. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. As always, the thunk of meaty hardbacks and the clatter of dice remind us that we are within the friendly confines of the gaming hut. Uh, Robin, I believe that you want to workshop a game mechanic for this gaming hut, so this will be quite the frenetic hut indeed. Uh, you have ideas, I think, on interpersonal disadvantages. Right, so what I thought we would do is give a look inside the uh, role-playing game design process and look at a possible subsystem, uh, and in this case, since we're choosing something both in Ken and I are familiar with, it will be a possible gumshoe thing, and we're going to see what you uh, could do with it, and then after that we will determine whether you should do that with it. So I, I have a note in my little notebook area for interpersonal disads, and to give you a bit of a background if you don't know gumshoe, gumshoe games do not all have a mechanic that tells you about the characters' personalities. Some of them do. Those are usually couched as drives, which are things about your character that makes him want to get into the sorts of trouble that characters in that genre must get into in order to have a story that fits that genre. But other games do not have that at all. What they all have is a subset of investigative abilities that we call interpersonal abilities. And these are things in which you leverage other people's personal impulses to get useful information. So uh, examples from the original Gumshoe game, the Esoteros, include uh, bullshit detector, uh, bureaucracy, cop talk, flattering, flirting, impersonate, uh, interrogation, intimidation, negotiation, reassurance, and streetwise. And those differ from different iterations of Gumshoe. One thing that I discovered that I'd left out for the Esoteros isn't so important there, but is necessary for other genres, is inspiration, which is the ability where you inspire people to reach for their best true selves and therefore motivate them to give you information. And that's something that uh, I noticed it was missing when I watched Fringe and the Olivia character on Fringe, that's her key interpersonal ability. But it's also something that you need for starship commanders, uh, for example. So that's in Ashen Stars. So that's the baseline rule that already exists. And so the, my thought uh, was that perhaps that you could use those abilities because they're assigned uh, ratings, usually from about uh, one, where one is you are very, very, very good at this and can use it in investigations, to three being you are amazing at this and this is your sort of signal way that you get information of people. And sort of backwards engineer that into saying, well, what does it tell us about your character as a person, that they are very good at this, and then what 
disadvantages might come with being very good at this, uh, because that's also a standard thing in detective uh, fiction in particular, where the, the very things that make the character a really great detective and problem solver are also the things that make them outsiders, that separate them from other people and make it uh, difficult for them to get along in the ordinary world. And of course, that comes, you know, right with Sherlock Holmes to, to a huge degree. So for example, what if having a high rating in flattery meant that you come off as insincere at times? Or what if being very reassuring means that you can't also come across as uh, very uh, tough, for example? So what kind of uh, thoughts does that get rolling in your noggin can about how you might uh, implement this idea, leaving aside for the moment whether one should implement this idea? Well, I think that there's two things that we have to look at. First of all, uh, you can just implement that idea as sort of an internal cue to role-playing, right? If you say, I've bought Reassurance 3, so I'm not going to put any points in to intimidate, and in a uh, hard situation that, that would require, says, your Clint Eastwoods or your uh, Lee Van Cleefs, I'm going to not be that. I'm just going to try and stay in the background and, and let the other uh, players uh, take center stage there. And it can be just sort of a role-playing note in a way that you look at your character. And I think that uh, we both mention sort of elements of that in Ashen Stars and in Knights Black Agents. Mechanically, I think that it should be most uh, signally important in situations where you are engaged in something that could be qualified as interpersonal conflict, which is an idea that is right on the top of my head because I've just finished uh, working on the bubblegum shoe uh, design document. And the teen noir genre, the teen detective genre, is rife with interpersonal conflict. And so there had to be a system by which interpersonal abilities can, a can apply to, a to an interpersonal conflict and a new general ability for, th for social conflict, which we called throwdown. And so I would say that if you have maximized uh, one sort of interpersonal ability, the mechanical way to do it is that you have a minus one to contests or tests or challenges or big spends. You have to spend an extra point maybe on sort of its inverse. So you would say, if you've maxed reassurance, then you're going to be down one at intimidation. And if you've ma and sort of put them all in opposite. So if you've maxed out uh, flattery, you're going to be down one in reassurance. And if you've maxed out uh, intimidation, you're going to be down one in um, fast talk or, or whatever it happens to be. Or uh, and so you would you would sort of build that sort of like we have like or like you have with skullduggery, where each sort of verbal uh, at attack mode has an innate defense mode. And if you're good at that, then you're good at resisting that uh, that mode of attack. I think to make it really worth the points and to make it be anything other than a way for the GM to occasionally uh, hose the player, who after all is being punished for spending points to define their character in, in the initial formulation, you need to have a mechanical aspect to relationship or to interpersonal uh, spends. And even if it's just, it costs you an extra point to spend in that, in, in that area, uh, that's one thing. But if your skill is zero in Intimidate, you can't spend in that area anyway, so you're not really suffering a, a, a downshift to it. You're, it's really all going to be role-playing. Right, and another way that you could attach this is basically as a resource tax. So in Gumshoe, all of your investigative abilities have a, a rating attached to them, and you can spend that number of points uh, in each session uh, 
except in situations where some, sometimes she can refresh your points. But basically, for the purpose of this discussion, if you have three points in reassurance, you can spend a total of three reassurance points over the course of an investigation to get additional benefits above, above and beyond getting the information that you need to move forward in the scenario. So, for example, in a typical gumshoe situation, if you encounter a traumatized witness, you can get the information that you need out of them regardless of how you treat that witness. But if you, say, spend one point, you can calm them down and maybe you impress somebody else or you gain some other separate advantage that is useful in solving the mystery but not essential to it. So you could also look at this basically as a taxation system in which uh, you, when you enter other situations that don't really work very well for your preferred mode of dealing with people, you could then have to pay a tax so that if you are have a rating of three in flattery and you're the one that the group sends to talk to the no-nonsense hyper-rationalist guy who detests all social convention, you might have to spend one point of flattery simply not to annoy him. And what that would do, uh, you mentioned just basically how does a GM sort of torque over the players, but that would introduce a modicum of tactics in terms of who do you send in to talk to this new witness, where uh, sometimes in Gumshoe, for example, you run into a situation where there's one player who jumps in and, and tends to do all of the talking, and then once they're in the middle of talking to the non-player character that they're supposed to talk to, suddenly they're riffling through their character sheet to go, oh, well, how am I going to convince this person? And if you look at detective shows where there's sort of an ensemble of characters, often they will have an interesting little bit of dialogue where they decide who the best person is to go and talk to this person. And so the game function that that would supply is distributing the talking to NPCs features throughout the cast and making sure that people are well cast in the scenes that they decide to jump into. Yeah, I, I, I suppose you could sort of see that as... Um emphasizing niche protection in that way, although I'm not sure that you couldn't get the same effect just by saying something on the order of if you have three in a given interpersonal ability, you can't have any points in its opposite, and that would sort of create that same sort of effect through the back door without uh, sort of, again, imposing a tax on someone for being good at stuff. Right, and so here we're now entering another level of exploring what this game mechanic would do, because now we're uh, proposing a level of complexity that then goes backwards into the way the core rules currently work and changing them. Whereas before we were exploring ways that you could sort of bolt this as an option onto the additional game, in order to use Ken's suggestion, we would then have to change the way that character generation works. And we would have to deliberately set up the interpersonal abilities, first of all, so that everything has an opposite. And there are some opposites that sort of jump out at us from this list. For example, you know, that uh, a bullshit detector is, uh, you know, maybe the opposite of flattery, for example. But then that gets you into, uh, and so then you have to question whether the effect you're going to is worth it if it has all sorts of weird edge cases, because certainly that then, in order to erect this sort of paired opposite structure to make this idea work, 
then requires us to limit you, perhaps unnecessarily, into picking one thing or the other thing. So why can't you uh, play a sort of a psychopathic character or sociopathic character who is both really good at manipulating people, i.e. flattery, and really good at seeing through other people, i.e. bullshit detector. So that's uh, kind of one of the things that you start to explore when you're looking at a new subsystem that you're adding onto an existing game, which is what sort of not only complexity tax does it impose not on the characters, but on the players and on the GM, but also what sort of legacy tax does it impose in requiring you to go back into the core system and change things about that in order to make your new thing work. Yeah, again, I think that if you're going to start talking about interpersonal advantages or disadvantages either with a mechanical effect, you really have to make sure that the game is worth the candle, that the game is going to be focusing strongly on interpersonal activity such that uh, such that taking the penalty is as fun and interesting in play as not taking the penalty would be, or ideally more fun, that a player is enjoys... Uh, playing a character who ha who can't do flattery or who can't do intimidation, and that there are in-game strategies and in-game rewards and in-game uh, elements that make that kind of play just as fun as the standard sort of gumshoe character who is pretty much competent in whatever he wants to do. And if he just hasn't put points into it, that's just a it's more of a of an absence rather than an actual lack. And, and so you know you can you can say well I'm doing it as like I like I suggested for bubble gumshoe, or you could say well. In uh, maybe in the human world, gumshoe works normally, but once you get to fairy, uh, interpersonal abilities uh, become the currency, right? That they become the thing that you are uh, potentially gambling with by going into fairy, because you could lose your ability to to express any emotional connection because you've been eating fairy food and uh, dallying with fairy uh, ladies, and so therefore. Um, being unable to engage in one kind of interaction makes your tactics and your strategy more interesting as you have to navigate uh, the, the realm of fairy. So you could also have a situation where a specific setting flavor is the sort of thing that makes you look for a way to build a, a rules mechanic that will help you uh, uh, provide that flavor in play. Right. You can also look at ways to bring things into plays that are sort of on the dividing line between what's a mechanic and what's a story element. So, for example, if you can just sort of decide that any anybody who's put three or more points in an interpersonal ability, that that broadcasts something about them to the world at large, but it's not something that necessarily penalizes them in play. It's just something that other characters, particularly the characters played by the GM, pick up on. So that if you have a lot of points in inspiration, that uh, people who are uh, optimists react well to you, and people who are pessimists uh, come at you, or uh, and you and sort of throw that in your face when they're offering you resistance, which you will probably overcome by spending a point or just invoking the ability. So for example, you could make up a list of, you know, who in the party it has high-level interpersonal abilities and what sort of typical lines of dialogue characters might throw at them, because you very often see scenes in, again, detective fiction, where the witnesses and uh, 
your superior in the mutant city squad or, you know, whoever it is will confront you negatively about things that define you as a character. So if you have a really high streetwise rating, people can always be ragging on you for seeming suspicious or skeevy or, or looking scruffy. Right. Or if you have a high reassurance, people who decide to come at you, their lines of dialogue will reference, uh, you know, how foolishly optimistic you seem to be. Or the, the same, for example, with uh, inspiration. So that's something that you bring into play that brings out something about that character, but isn't necessarily a mechanical thing where you feel penalized. It's more an emotional thing where the GM throws you the ball, gives you a bit of dialogue that you can then bounce off of that makes your character with the high flirting feel different than the player sitting next to you whose character has a high impersonate, for example. Right. And something like that is in uh, the warp system, the over-the-edge system. I, I forget if he calls it tells, where each of the things that you have dice in, there's a, or there's a marker, there's a way that uh, observers can tell that you have that skill. So if you have many dice in karate, the tell is that you uh, move your feet uh, smoothly and always place them well. Or if you have uh, a, a gambling, then the tell is that you're... Uh, always um, uh, looking down at your hands or whatever. And so there's there, there there's that sort of thing that you can apply, and you can apply it not just to interpersonal abilities, you can also apply it um, if someone's got, you know, 10 in firearms, and you look at them across the room, and you're like, that guy looks like a badass. I'm not going to, you know, mess with him necessarily, unless I also am a uh, gifted gunslinger, in which case I'm going to maybe throw down on him a little extra hard. Right, and what you could then do is, is use those things to create uh, profiles of how the character appears to other people that the GM can then refer to. And so, for example, pick your top general ability. General ability is not to go into a huge amount of explanation, but they work differently in Gumshoe because it's okay if you fail at them, and they have higher uh, ratings generally. So if you have a you know driving as your highest ability, there will be things about you that are apparent to other people who are observing you well, that you you know obviously have... Uh, great reflexes and you're glancing over at your car all the time and that's something that again that you can as a gm look at as as a list of stuff to bring things out about that character and make them seem real because we often i think kind of fail to look for that sort of reactive thing where the non-player characters are perceiving things about the characters and allowing them to see themselves by reflection and that way they become what in literary terms are foils for the player characters. So having examined a bunch of things that we could do, now it's time to go back and think whether we should do any of these things. And the question that we want to look at there is, well, first of all, it's, it, it is speaking of tells, it's sort of a tell that I am discussing this on a podcast and not mm. including it in a game book. Right. But have we come up with anything, Ken, that you think is, is worthy of inclusion in any future iteration of Gumshoe? I think um, it's always not, it's never a bad idea to provide uh, role-playing uh, hints and tips of the sort that we were talking about. If you are really, really good at reassurance and m maybe you should play yourself as not really good at intimidating so that, you know, if you do intimidate someone, if you do have a point in it, then it comes across like if... Um, uh, Jewel State's character in Firefly suddenly points a blaster at someone. You're like, oh, where did that come from? She was so cute and nerdy, and now she's pointing a blaster at someone. That sort of effect, as opposed to 
you know, yeah, you've got a point to intimidate, so you're always going to be intimidating people, and it seems natural. I think that it, it does help uh, change up the way that you play the character. I think, likewise, your notion of building a profile of how major NPCs or observant NPCs look at the characters in play is never a bad idea, because it gives the GM a hook to start a role-playing session off and prevents it from being a pro forma, yeah, what are you going to do to me, copper, like he would say to every single other Mutant City Blues mutant uh, who comes after him. So I think that those two, because A, they have no mechanical effect, and B, they enrich roleplay, are probably worth putting in to a future Gumshoe Core book, maybe even to every future Gumshoe Core book, just as little notes in playing characters. But I'm not sure that I think that the mechanical systems that we've talked about are worth it unless you've really designed a system that requires attention to that kind of, of, of sublevel, like I was talking about. Teenage Noir or Fairy Courts or something, where an interpersonal uh, ability really is the, the difference between life and death, socially or magically. Right, and the object lesson there is that rarely does something that comes to you abstractly as a game mechanic ever turn out to be anything, because that's not actually what you need in the process of design, is that you need to start out with what things do I need to have happen, and what mechanisms do I then require in order to make those happen, and then the next step is how simple and clear can I make those systems, not how elegant and abst mathematical abstraction can I create, now what do I do with it? Yeah. And so often uh, I am asked at panels, and I'm sure you are as well, Ken, you know, how how do you get an idea for a rule system? Do you have an idea for a rule system that you haven't found a setting for yet? And my answer anyway is always that the thought process has to work in reverse, that you start with your needs and then arrive at the mechanism to achieve those needs because, of course, there's a reason why it's called a mechanic. Well, I think that um, I, there, I know people who are natural mechanics, which I am not. I am not a natural games mechanicist. I am a natural uh, storyteller in, in your sense, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm a natural setting builder. And so when I look at a setting or a story, I can see pieces of the existing mechanic or even maybe pieces of a mechanic from another game that really, really work well to uh, bring up that story element or that setting element. But I'm not the kind of guy who sits there and comes up with a really sweet thing to do with a bell curve or a great uh, you know card mechanic. But I know plenty of people who are. I mean, I would imagine that someone like um, uh, uh, Daniel Solis or Eric Lang or Greg Stolze, who are real, real strong mechanics wizards, would be able to come up or would be, you know, if they were gumshoe uh, designers, they'd be sitting there with a copy of gumshoe and they'd have 15 different gumshoe hacks that they would be able to have up their sleeve and then plug into a game. And maybe they would design the setting to make those hacks really seem awesome. That, that since they know they have a really, really sweet physical combat hack, they want to design a gumshoe game of boxing uh, movies or sword fights or whatever. Right, and, and the venue in which that sort of pure starting with the abstraction and then figuring out what to bolt onto it, of course, is the the arena of the German-style board game. Right. Where it that design process really is about uh, coming up with a really interesting interaction of stuff and then figuring out what sort of flavor goes with that stuff. And it's not the flavor that you're going for, it's the interaction of these abstract elements. Yeah, although, of course, with the German board games, they, I, to my taste, they always stop well before they've gotten to interesting, um, because 
like I say, I'm not a mechanics head, so I look at a cute piece of math. It's like, well, fine, if you're not going to you know, build an A-bomb with it, I don't care. Right. Uh, well, I think as we sometimes do at the end of a segment, we are edging toward uh, yet another entire topic. So it is time to back slowly out of the cheesy, scented confines of the gaming hut. Now Ken and I step carefully yet furtively into a nondescript floral shop, submit to a retinal scan, and thereby enter the secret door into the Tradecraft Hut, where we discuss uh, matters uh, fictional and real concerning the world of espionage. And this week, we have uh, discovered through court documents released as a result of an unsuccessful prosecution of officials of the Blackwater Mercenary Company, which is now known as Academy, with an I at the end, uh, that apparently all along, Blackwater operated as a CIA front. Ken, are we shocked that there is gambling in this casino? I, I am sure that someone must be shocked because um, uh, uh, people love to put Blackwater in headlines with lots of exclamation points as though they had nodded off during the last um, uh, 75 years of the American national security state. But no, I don't think we're shocked, not least because in 2010, uh, Vanity Fair did a very long uh, interview uh, with Eric Prince that also basically laid out his defense against various federal prosecutions that what he was being prosecuted for was doing what the CIA asked him to. And I think that you can sort of go around and around on to what extent is he an asset in the sense that there's a, a handler somewhere that runs him and to what extent is it that the CIA knows that they've got, you know, the equivalent uh, cadre for a, for a, a, a good uh, sized battalion sitting down there in North Carolina that they can send into the most god-awful hellhole and not have to uh, put it on their balance sheet. And I'm not sure that there's really a difference, uh, se, I'm sure that there's a legal difference, and I'm sure that uh, Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater's Lawyers, are very insistent on uh, whatever legal uh, protection can be gotten from being a listed asset. But basically, after 9-11, he responded just like any American who happened to have the equivalent of a of an armored, uh, of an airborne battalion to command would, <laughs> and started sending it into Afghanistan to whack um, uh, al-Qaeda guys. And the fact that he, you know, occasionally um, uh, worked with the CIA or, and then later on made several million dollars doing contracting for the CIA is just sort of the, it's the same sort of thing that people have been doing in America's war since Alan Pinkerton volunteered, quote-unquote, his services uh, to the Union Army. It's the same basic approach that we've used in every war, and people who are surprised about it are people who I think are sort of willingly ignorant of how wars and America work. Now, in this case, one of the key felonies in this instance was that Prince had his employees provide the King of Jordan with really cool guns with the Blackwater logo emblazoned on them and had his employees write up the paperwork as if they still owned those guns. And this was, the defense was that this was a favor asked of them to sort of jolly up the King of, of Jordan, who liked to shoot guns and liked the Blackwater logo. And that sort of imposes sort of an odd situation in that it seems that a, a lot of instances that what Blackwater was being asked to do was not what we think of in terms of being an espionage front organization, which is to proceed 
secretly, or at least deniably, for the actual governmental bosses, but in this case was a lot of times just being used to skip the paperwork stage, that there is such a level of bureaucracy that has built up around what CIA agents can actually do, that it was just easier to have Blackwater do stuff for them and fudge the rules, and there, I guess it's still deniability in which they are you know, outsourcing the legal jeopardy, but it's not what you normally think of in terms of what a, a CIA front operation is doing. Yeah, in in uh, the in the article, Eli Lake, who by the way is a terrific national security reporter uh, in the in the Daily Beast. Uh, it's I, one hesitates to plug the Daily Beast, but Eli Lake is really really good and well worth reading. Um, anyway, what Eli Lake says is that uh, the Prince says that the reason that they gave them the guns was not even so much to avoid paperwork as that the CIA just forgot to bring a present for the King of Jordan. And if you know anything about the CIA, that is that is perhaps the most terrifyingly believable revelation in the whole article, is that you've got the King of Jordan out shooting guns and you've forgotten to bring him a gun. Uh, it just seems ridiculous. But if you remember in Zero Dark Thirty, you know, the crucial moment of CIA penetration comes when they buy that guy a Lamborghini. And, you know, one imagines you could have another three-and-a-half-hour movie showing the poor bastard filling out all the paperwork to have had to do that. <laughs> yes, that might be a Bellatar movie where yeah. there's just one one long shot of a guy filling out the forms for three-and-a-half hours in, in murky black and white. So this sort of brings up an issue that you've talked about a bit previously in terms of the differences between reality levels in the way that we handle espionage stories in gaming or in fiction, in that you have your... James Bond uh, level of reality in which, of course, you never see a, a plot line that hinges on the fact that somebody screwed up and forgot to bring a gift for this important uh, potentate, and then there's a, a court case later. But that's very much the reality level that you see in John le Carré, which is very much about the dreadful dreariness of that bureaucratic uh, enterprise and the fact that it has this life and death Cold War element to it is really not even almost sort of a, a side level to the real sort of human spiritual uh, crushing ennui of, of those original core books. So that you sort of have a, a, a dust level reality where everything is bureaucratic uh, screw ups. And then you have this sort of higher level of fantasy espionage where it is all about the delightful fun adventure aspect and not about the stuff that grinds down real people who are stuck in real institutions, which regardless of whether they're governing agricultural policy or trying to prevent bombs from going off in their cities, are still subject to the same uh, pressures that uh, mire them in inactivity. Yeah, there's a the, the Vanity Fair article that uh, came out in 2010 talks about Blackwater having been tasked to do secret assassinations of these... Um, al-Qaeda uh, goons, and so they, you know, and this is Ken Blackwater saying it, so Lord knows if it's true, but they, you know, set up their team, went dark into, uh, the one guy is in Hamburg, Germany, so they went into Hamburg without telling the Germans and without telling the CIA station in Hamburg um, that they're following this guy, and they followed him, and they got his routine, and for whatever reason, the lawyers back at the CIA refused to say, now pull the trigger on him possibly because they figured that an assassination on the soil of a NATO ally without telling anyone is, 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 is bad for business going forward. But you can certainly look at, at uh, uh, 
espionage agencies, like, say, Mossad, that are less picky about those sorts of details. And so the degree of realism is not necessarily a condition of the universe. It's a condition of which espionage agency you're working for. And even the CIA, back in sort of its more cowboy era, under certainly under Bill Donovan, but even to an extent under uh, uh, Casey, under Reagan, had... A, a sort of a, a freer hand with uh, sending people around the world to, to whack strangers on little or no provocation. Right, but 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 a freer hand needn't necessarily indicate a fantasy level of espionage. No, no, because that can introduce all sorts of other different flavored screw ups for the characters in your story to have to deal with if your group of people finds that the entertaining thing to do. Yeah, you you know you can certainly still have backblast if you if you imagine for a second that um, uh, Bill Casey was sending a, a team of, of deniable mercenaries to Germany to kill a Libyan, say, and they got caught, there would still be a great, huge foo that would uh, tie everyone down in, in legal proceedings and uh, deportations and Lord knows what. Whereas in James Bond, if he's sent to you know Germany to kill a guy, he goes to Germany, he sleeps with the guy's girlfriend, he shoots him through the face, and, you know, smash cut to Macau, where he's following up the lead. Right, and much of the joke of Charles Strauss's laundry series, and therefore the laundry RPG, is again that this is a bureaucratic, quintessentially British organization, and it's you're contrasting the horror of the mythos with the more workaday horror of just being trapped in a world of eternal mild disappointment. Uh, what you can do then is look at your players, and when choosing the reality level that you want to put them in, is to see the degree to which they are attracted or perhaps ineluctably drawn against their will toward the sort of comedy of error style of role-playing where it is all about uh, screwing up and then trying to get out of your screw-ups because it requires sort of more of a a group that, first of all, has a high level of self-confidence and a high degree of desire to push quickly through obstacles to make the most out of that sort of heroic action mode and a different sort of group who are always sort of looking for little logistical glitches to hang themselves up on may in fact be telling you that they uh, want against all sense and reason to have their characters in this more realistic uh, what in Knight's Black Agents you call the dust mode of espionage. Yeah, I think a lot of it is when you introduce any new element, whether it be um, uh, unsanctioned assassinations or hellish paperwork, the trick is to make sure it's an element that at least some of your players have shown, as you say, even a subconscious interest in. And I think that if you, for example, if your players have enjoyed playing Paranoia in the past, you know, the, the segue into the laundry files or into a strongly dust-mode bureaucratic game of Nice Black Agents is going to be more welcome than if all they've played in the spy genre is James Bond 007, and they react with mild disappointment that they're expected even to roll their cover to get into a country. Right, and this is something that you could import into other games as well. Uh, whatever the genre, for example, you could look at the Ezoterrorist, which again posits a sort of an espionage geopolitical uh, world in which you confront horrors. The default assumption in that setting is that it is a competent, mysterious, shadowy bureaucracy, the sort of thing that exists in the world of conspiracy theories, but is in fact a benevolent conspiracy that fights the other evil conspiracy. And it assumes that they know what they're doing, and then if you're relatively competent in the field, you will not get hung up. But you could easily sort of flip that into an even more 
spiritually draining horror where you are fighting not only the esoteric conspiracy, but you're fighting the incompetence of your own bureaucracy. Or you could do that, you know, in a, a space uh, opera game where the question could be, you know, you are either super competent spacefarers working for a super competent space agency, or you could be working for a deteriorating uh, bureaucracy that is deterring you from succeeding in the field the way that a lot of real world rare echelon types deter their operatives from succeeding in the real world. Yeah, you can you can you can look at it in the esoterist context basically as a decision if you assume that the adventure has three parts, the mystery solving, the confrontation with the esoteric and the veil out. In theory, you could do any one of those threes with with just one roll, right? The, the veil-out is just one roll or one spend, right? I'm spending bureaucracy to make it go away. Right. And the veil-out in this context, just to explain, is this, in order to maintain sanity uh, and rationality in the world and prevent the bad guys from breaking through and creating magic, at the end of an investigation in the Esoterrorist, you then have to make it look like a mundane reality. And often that's as much a challenge as finding out what's going on. Then you have to figure out how to cover it up. Right. But my point is that... Uh, you can, in theory, make any one of those things a one roll or a short uh, sort of appetizer or uh, dessert after the main event. And I guess, in theory, the main event is solving the mystery and then the big confrontation with the Esoterror. And then at the end, there's a couple of rolls and maybe a couple of, you know, interpersonal spends and the veil out happens and everyone's happy. But for a game that's that, that sort of Le Carre laundry type feel, I could certainly imagine something where you spend a lot of time on the investigation the actual confrontation is relatively short, if horribly dangerous, and then the veil-out takes as long as the investigation did because you have to go back and tie off all the loose ends that you uncovered, and that that's the, the goal, while simultaneously your own, uh, the, your own order or, the, or your cover agency or the locals or the sheer cussed nature of reality keeps tripping you up. And it, I, I think that's, again, the sort of thing where you look at what do my players seem to enjoy during the game. If they're having a lot of fun going over and uh, and brainwashing uh, the bad guys uh, or the witnesses or uh, losing files somewhere in the in the FBI's computers or whatever it is, maybe that's something I want to build up. Or if, as you say, they, they keep looking for ways to string themselves up in their own bureaucracy or their own uh, uh, over-cautiousness, maybe they are trying to say that's the fun thing that they enjoy doing. I should note that Blackwater is... Uh, perhaps the only mercenary corporation to actually have a role-playing game uh, built around it. Uh, if you remember Charles Ryan's Millennium's End, it uh, dealt with Black Eagle, which is a thinly veiled uh, version of, of Black Water. So if you hunt down your old Millennium's End source books on the web or wherever else, you can, um, uh, you can basically have sort of a insider role-player view of what it is to be a mercenary contractor in the happy days before Al-Qaeda was uh, more than a trivia contest answer. Well, on that note, I think that we have uh, explained uh, geopolitics, uh, bureaucracy, and its applications to gaming. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Hippie Wizard asks Ken and Robin, 
How do you overcome the shyness barrier when GMing and playing, a.k.a. the gamer introvert factor? Robin? First of all, I would advise to make sure that you, you just perform the basic standard exercise where you imagine that all of the players are fully clothed. <laughs> Otherwise, the, the visuals can become distressing and you want to uh, shirk your way uh, away from that. Uh, but in all seriousness, I think the main thing to keep in mind when you GM is that unless you have a cuckoo in the nest who's going to cause you trouble, unless you have one of those common disruptive players whose goal is to subvert everyone else's fun to make it all about them and to try and play a game of adversarial player, with that caveat in mind, and we can look at how to deal with that later, everyone in the group wants you to succeed. So the things that make one instinctively shy when dealing with other people, remember that they're not really in play here, is that everybody wants to meet you halfway. Everybody wants to have fun. Everybody wants you to do a good job. So just first of all, remember that you are in a safe environment emotionally where everybody wants you to shine. And so the next thing to look at, I would say, is what is it in particular when you're thinking about the typical job of a GM that tends to make you the most nervous and tends to activate your shyness because you're in a group of people, you've all agreed that you're going to do this fun thing. Is there something in particular about being a GM or being a player that makes you a little nervous and reluctant to participate and then to either focus to attack that and overcome it or to structure the situation so that you do not have to face that thing? So that if you are uncomfortable doing dialogue, for example, you might want to structure your early games so that they are very focused on describing the environment and perhaps combat. Um, if, on the other hand, you're nervous about dealing with all the numbers and rules, you might want to either find a game with fewer numbers and rules uh, that is more focused on dialogue and interaction and talking than it is on, on math, um, or uh, you might want to look at the particular bits of, of math that hang you up and really learn them and master them so that you are uh, the things that you're nervous about that you feel really well prepared in. I, I think that um, part of the problem with, with shyness, as with any emotional reaction, is it's very difficult to sort of reason yourself out of an emotional condition. Um, and you can sit there and think, well, everyone here at the table likes me, except, of course, you know that everyone here at the table is uh, sort of a, a gamer jerk and is willing to make fun of you if you say something stupid, which is, frankly, describes virtually everyone that you and I both know and love dearly. Um, but I think that the key sort of insight that you have to have as a GM or as a player is that the other people are, for the purposes of this game, not as important as the game going forward. And that's not about your character going forward or about your precious NPC or the great set piece that you've thought up. It's about the game going forward. And if you can sort of even retreat farther into uh, disconnection and look at the game as a mechanical process, I think that can sort of let you address it and say, well, obviously, as the GM, I look at this and I say, there hasn't been a fight scene yet today. There should be a fight scene. And you're... And you can think about the fight scene and how to work that in without necessarily uh, being 
caught up in how ridiculous you sound doing barmaid dialogue. And conversely, if you're a player and you're looking at the thing and you're saying, man, um, uh, Bill hasn't really gotten to use his thief skills, I'm going to look around and see if there's a chance for Bill to use his thief skills, and then maybe Bill won't, uh, won't make fun of me, and Bill will say, good job, and then I will be uh, you know, in with Bill and less shy about it. I think maybe that's a way to do it. I mean, the, the way that I overcame my gamer shyness factor, my gamer introvert factor, was go to a state college, play role-playing games for four straight years, and drink. Um, but I guess that's not really a, a, a viable solution for next Saturday night. Right, and uh, in fairness, you were bitten by a radioactive gin bottle. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, I was bitten by a whole, a whole case of radioactive gin, I think, at one point or another. Um, one thing to deal with introversion in general, which I think works really well in a role-playing context, is introversion. Look at the word. It means looking inward. And to make yourself an extrovert, pay conscious attention to others. And what you can do, a, a trick that I think works really well in this context, is to pick the one person in the group who you already feel the closest connection to, and pay attention to what their reactions are and study their reactions and try to create something that pings off of them. So that if you are the uh, GM and there's one person in the group who you feel the most natural affinity with when you're first starting out, this is something you'll want to correct for later, but just to get yourself over that hump is to sort of focus on that person as being the person that you address and the person whose character you draw into the situations and have that character become the focus. And so if you're sitting in a room full of people, this is a basic, you know, theater or improv trick. If more than one person is looking at any individual person, they will follow your eyeline to that other person. So that if you work, first of all, at focusing everyone's attention on a key player in the group, all of the other players will start to pay attention to that uh, player. Now, it may be that that person is already sort of the most extroverted of the players, and as long as they are someone who wants to play with you instead of at you, which is sometimes a problem with extroverted players, you can then use their energy to sort of piggyback on, and once you start paying attention to them and making it all about them and giving them stuff, and, you know, just imagine yourself kind of taking a ball and throwing it to that other player and then having that other player will start passing this invisible ball of attention between the other players and pretty soon you've got a natural group dynamic going and it helps you to drop out of that mental state where it's I'm me and they're them and get you into a state where everybody's all part of a group. And so just paying attention to other people's reactions gets you out of that space of you're just one person sitting in your chair and gets you out into the group along with the other people. Yeah, I, I think that that's, um, that that's certainly one good part of it. Another part might be to pay attention, I, I think in general, if you're the player, I think paying attention to the GM is something the GM always appreciates. And if you can even guess a little bit of what the GM would like people to man up and do, then do that, and then the GM will like you because you've saved her story, or you've helped her uh, fight scene move along, or you've you know gotten rid of an annoying um, distraction that was bogging down play. And if you can sort of uh, play to the GM as a player, you're doing you're, 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 the GM is not going to slap you down for that. That's a that's a rock solid guarantee from a lifetime GM. And playing to the GM while it can be 
uh, stultifying later on is a good way to sort of get yourself out of a rut. If you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I've been sitting here for three hours and I've, I've eaten more than my share of Doritos and everyone's looking at my fingers, then, you know, look at the GM. See what the GM is trying to get happen. And if the GM is not clear about what they're trying to get happen, use your character's perception or uh, social abilities or anything that your character has that can give the GM an excuse to tell you what they would like to have happen. You know, are there any rumors of a dungeon nearby, my elf asks, that kind of thing. And so I think that that specifically is a good way for players to sort of um, you know, uh, resolve any sort of ongoing dilemma about, oh, well, what if someone doesn't like it that I speak up? If you speak up in a way that the GM is trying to get everyone else to speak up in, if you're trying to move the story in the direction the GM wants it moved, then you're going to make the GM happy. And making the GM happy, like I need to tell anyone, is halfway to victory. Right, and a, a similar trick is to look at the player who's sort of the, the natural extroverted player who's kind of leading things and ask yourself, how can I... To start with, make my character the foil for his character. So he's, uh, you know, let's say he's the rough and tumble uh, dwarf who doesn't take any nonsense. You figure out a way to set up banter with him that brings out something about his character. You could be skeptical of his uh, refusal to take any nonsense. You could be the uh, young, uh, less intelligent dwarf who... Uh, decides to treat him as an instigator and goes, uh, what do we do now, Bob? What do we yeah, Right. And so you can then, uh, again, piggyback off of his energy and allow that to draw you in so that the, you're, again, as Ken is suggesting, you're not stuck with the thought, what do I do? But you've got a more specific question, which is, who's got a ball in the air and how do I catch it and amplify whatever thought that they are building towards so that rather than having to start from scratch when bringing things to the table, you're looking for something that's to, to start with already in play that you can put a little spin on or amplify just a little bit. And that's not as big a job and it's a more specific question and it's something that you can jump onto so that you're not being ex expected to add a whole new plot thread, but just to come up with a cool little twist on somebody else's plot thread. And the whole yes and concept, which we should probably devote an entire segment to later, <laughs> is that look for ways rather than just sort of shutting down other people's suggestions or creating alternate suggestions that don't match with their suggestions and that you have to decide one way or the other, as someone who's over trying to overcome shyness, look for ways to build on what other people are doing, and that way you will immediately start to feel included as part of a group dynamic. And it's in the group that there is power. And I think that having, as you intimated, moved us toward another topic, we will say, yes, you are right, and we are done with the segment. Scintillation of chronotons and the grinding wheels of the time machine indicate that, yes, indeed, we are once more in proximity of Ken's time machine, which is the vehicle that Time Incorporated straps Ken into as they send him back into history to alter, alleviate, or change it. And in this case, 
They have an interesting assignment that follows up on our little papal sub-theme from last episode. And in this case, uh, Ken, they're going to send you back to prevent the uh, arrest and death in detention of Pope Pius VI. And this is a story that I knew very little about until the Time Incorporated dossier appeared on my desk. So as you've researched this scenario, what did you discover about this uh, incident in history? Well, the uh, thing about Pope Pius VI is that he was sort of a standard 18th century pope. He was um, uh, sort of a weasel, and he was sort of a jerk. But on the other hand, he was caught up in the sort of um, age of reason and uh, general uh, people who run things as dictators should try not to be such a jerk to the people they run. And so he set up uh, the, the Vatican Museum, and he tried to drain the marshes, uh, the Pontine marshes around Rome, and do a lot of public works. He was sort of embarrassed because the Grand Duke of Tuscany was really, really good at making Tuscany uh, not terrible, and so he had a little keeping up with the with the with the Sforzas there. I think we we rarely think of literal marsh draining as the job of a contemporary pope. Yes, but you know that's because Mussolini did it, and uh, by God, when Mussolini drains a marsh, it either stays drained or it swallows up an entire German army. Um, <laughs> the, the, the marsh runs on time. <laughs> the marsh runs on time. By golly. But anyway, so he's sort of a, 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 you know, one of those sort of borderline figures. And the thing that happens early on in his life, if you had put money at, uh, during most of his time of who was going to arrest him, it wouldn't have been Napoleon Bonaparte. It would have been Emperor Joseph II of Austria, who was, uh, similarly trying to reform Austria. And his idea of reforming was to shut down a bunch of monasteries and take all their money and to appoint uh, his own bishops within the Austrian Empire and within the Holy Roman Empire, which was something that uh, Pope Pius had thought had been solved in the 11th century. And so he went to Vienna in 1782 to sort of remonstrate with the emperor, and Joseph II was not a man who took remonstration particularly well. So I think that there was probably um, uh, not a not a small odds that he would have been arrested then and tossed into jail, certainly if uh, Kaunitz, the sort of reforming minister of Austria, had had his way. That might well have happened. There are few emperors who enjoy remonstration. There are. It's it's not really a job description thing. Please remonstrate me, they say. Never. But uh, at any rate, uh, Joseph II, uh, for whatever reason, did not uh, throw the Pope in uh, prison. <laughs> he allowed the Pope to leave Vienna unmolested and put him up at a sumptuous monastery on the Austrian border with Italy. And then, in Joseph II fashion, immediately closed the monastery after the Pope left it and took all of its belongings and uh, <laughs> confiscated them from the public purse. So, Pope uh, Pius begins with sort of a bad attitude towards uh, the modern era and towards uh, Joseph II in specific. And when the French Revolution breaks out, obviously the revolutionaries do even more than that. They shut down the entire uh, Roman Catholic uh, uh, infrastructure in, in France. They they close all the uh, the cathedrals and all the churches. They profane uh, Notre Dame. They they stable horses in it. It's just you know anti clericalism and and atheism and all manner of horror going on. Not to mention chopping off a bunch of people's heads, including a number of uh, priests and bishops. And so and they also take away the Pope's town of Avignon, which he owned by right of a previous pope having been kidnapped there, which is the kind of way that things got done in the Middle Ages before. 
people like Joseph II got around to fixing it. Uh, yeah, but being kidnapped isn't an unusual way of acquiring real estate these days. But if you're the Pope, you know, apparently it works. Or at least it works until the French Revolution says, eh, not so much. That seems like a gameable system, like you would go around trying to be kidnapped in order to increase the size of your holdings. I'd, I'd double dog dare you. Kidnap me here. <laughs> no, no, I like that carpet. Damn it. <laughs> Curse you, Pope. But anyway, um, so the, the French Revolution is being all French and revolutionary, and then even after the uh, sort of the, the Thermidorian reaction sets in, and they allow a church back in France. Uh, l l let me uh, stop and ask you to define uh, what a Thermidorian reaction is. Uh, it's anyone who's allergic to lobster or cheese. No, actually, a Thermidorian reaction is, a, is the movement against the Jacobins, against the Reign of Terror, against Robespierre and his gang, that happened in the revolutionary month of Thermidor, because not satisfied with uh, fixing everything else that was wrong with France, they also fixed the calendar, which is why we celebrate a decimal year today. We, we all knew that, didn't we, listeners? Yes, of course we did. Um, uh, because we th they'd all read Sandman, and so they knew all about Thermidor. But anyway, the, um, the Thermidorian reaction sets in, and so France has a church, but it's a national church. It's what they call the Gallican Church, and the Pope is all mad about that, too. So he starts out really ticked off. France and Austria are at war because uh, the French uh, Revolution is a threat, an existential threat to the old monarchies, and none of them were older or more existential than Austria's. And so the uh, French and Austrians are at war, and a young whippersnapper named Napoleon Bonaparte is bustled off to the army of Italy to uh, get out of the way of the important fight that's going on in Germany, but he is Napoleon Bonaparte, and he beats the hell out of... Um, uh, the first Austrian general, Bolio, and then he beats maybe the heck out of the next Austrian general, Wormser, and during the process discovers that a really great way to get the French government to uh, send him more uh, troops and reinforcements and do dirt to his enemies is to loot big pieces of Italy and send the loot back to the directory, the, the French government, after the reaction. And if you send uh, the directory, you know, a couple of million pounds of gold uh, with which to uh, pay their um, uh, salaries and, and uh, get their second mistresses set up nice, then you you get promoted much faster than other generals, with the result that by the time that he's fighting in uh, against Wormser and against Wormser's successor, he's got plenty of uh, mili uh, military material, plenty of reinforcements, he's got overall command in Italy, and... Um, he realizes that what he wants to do is keep taking over rich places in Italy, none of which richer than Rome. So he sends his armies down. They invade uh, the Romagna, which is the, the, the part of the papal states that the Pope rules as a, um, as a secular ruler. And, of course, because they are the French army and he's got the Swiss guards and a couple of other guys, uh, they beat him hollow and force the Pope to ch pass over a big choking amount of money and a bunch of territory. And then uh, the French ambassador, uh, one Joseph Bonaparte, engages in sort of duplicitous behavior to get uh, the people of Rome to rise up against the Pope, proclaim a Roman Republic, and, and basically open the floodgates to seize all the rest of the Pope's cities so that uh, the French Revolution can uh, dine out on the Pope's money. So this is all basically a standard issue Rome sacking expedition. Exactly. It's it take it's a little more slow motion than most, but it is a standard issue Rome sack. Uh and the uh Pope, uh after the proclamation of the Roman Republic, the Roman Republicans and the French uh ambassador Joseph Bonaparte go to the Pope and demand that he 
rescind all temporal authority, the Pope refuses to, and he is taken prisoner, because he's basically like an enemy king who hasn't surrendered. So they take him prisoner, they shuffle him off uh, to Siena, and then to an air, a town of Curtosa near Florence. Um, then France invades uh, Tuscany, and he has to be moved out of Tuscany, and he dies in uh, a French city at uh, Valence. Uh, and so he winds up uh, dying in uh, 1799, which is roughly uh, two years, two and a half years after uh, he loses at Tolentino and most of a year after his arrest. So how do you, uh, th that's the story that we have it now in our current timeline. So how do you go in and insert yourself into this situation and uh, prevent his uh, arrest and or uh, death in custody? Well, I think that this is one of those uh, things where you have to sort of play two or three different strings to your bow at the same time. And obviously, the two things that are wrong uh, with the Pope, uh, you know, not that are wrong with him, that are, uh, that are messing with him, are that he is being an old stick in the mud about uh, the French invasion and giving them lots of excuses to invade and take over his, uh, his papal states. Among them, for example, uh, papal troops fired on a French general named Maturin Leonard Dufault um, uh, and uh, during a riot, uh, they, the, the, the troops uh, gunned down the rioters and killed a French general, which is the sort of behavior that does not uh, redound well on you if Napoleon is hanging around and his brother is the ambassador. Uh, that's what we call a pretext around here. That is what we call a pretext. It is exactly what we call a pretext. And uh, the other problem is, of course, that he's got Napoleon Bonaparte on his tail, not any of the less uh, energetic and loot-y French generals. So you have to simultaneously sort of strengthen Pope Pius's position with regard to uh, the Roman Republicans with, and with regard to the French Revolution. And then you also have to weaken Napoleon such that the Austrians are still, you know, sort of athwart the routes into Rome. And I think that a lot of those are going to involve just uh, the the strengthening of the Pope, I think, is going to have to involve a lot of wine drunk with a lot of junior members of the Curia, in which it is sort of made plain to them the degree to which uh, uh, Napoleon is, is sort of bad news. And you can go back and you can look at uh, the massacre at Toulon. You can look at, uh, if, you, if, you, if you have that long, you can go to his er very early victories in Piedmont, where without a single siege gun, he takes a mountainous uh, city-state around uh, Turin, and uh, it, it, with fewer men, by the way, than the, than the Piedmontese army, much less the Austrian army that was in Piedmont at the time. So you can sort of, you should be saying, this is a real threat, this is not messing around. And if you have to be saying this while sampling the Vatican uh, wine cellars, you know, that's so be just it. what you have to do. But the great thing is, of course, that the Pope has a pre-existing beef with the Emperor of Austria. And I don't think that it should be impossible to say, look, Pope, here's what you're going to do. Uh, pay the French a big bunch of money anyway. Pay them protection money. That's got old uh, Prevent Rome from Being Sacked cred that goes back to Attila the Hun. And then simultaneously issue a papal bull saying that Austria's occupation of Italy is illegitimate and that uh, any Italian who raises hands against Austria gets, you know, 40 free indulgences and um, uh, free incense for a week or whatever it is, so that 
the French directory sees the papacy as an ally against Austria, sort of an enemy of my enemy situation. Although presumably your opening verbal gambit is something more nuanced than look Pope. <laughs> look Pope. Well, it's Italian, so it sounds better. It's like, um, uh, Pejodere uh, il Papa. So it sounds better, right? Ecce Papa. Um, so the, uh, so it's, it, it's obviously more friendly. And by this time, I, I mean, a guy like, uh, Pius is, he's been around. He's, he's fairly, uh, he's, he's fairly flexible politically. He, uh, maintains a moderate anti-Jesuit policy while strengthening Jesuits in, in non-Catholic areas like the Jesuits in Russia. He allows to keep their charter, for example. He's, he's able to sort of, um, uh, compromise and bat and dodge and weave when he's, uh, facing down the German bishops and the Neapolitan bishops. And again, the kingdom of Naples has also been a jerk to him, and he can say, look, uh, Napoleon, I'll provide papal ships to transport your troops from Genoa, uh, which is at that point a sort of uh, unwilling French ally, down to Naples, and I'll call upon the Neapolitans to rise up against uh, King uh, Leopold. And maybe that gets out of hand and the people of Rome rise up against you, but again, if you are not having your papal guards scattered to the four winds in a series of uh, very one-sided battles... I think you've got more more maneuvering room uh, to sort of become a ally of the French as opposed to a victim of them. Then on the other side, it's really important to weaken Napoleon, and that is very very hard because Napoleon's advantages against, uh, say, the Piedmontese. You look at that; he has fewer fewer troops in the Piedmontese. He goes in uh, through a mountain pass. It's not impossible that you can go to the uh, Field Marshal Coley, the commander of the Piedmontese, and say. The French are invading through this mountain pass at this time, and Coley would still sit on it because he is not an energetic commander and his troops are terrible, and the Piedmontese, half of them, want to get out of the war and join France in, to avoid being looted uh, and, to, and to screw with Austria because Austria is roundly hated in, in Italy. So I think stopping him in Piedmont is tricky and probably not possible. My best shot at stopping him is with the only good general... He fought during that campaign a fellow named Dagobert Sigmund von Wormser. And just getting to drink Tokai with a guy named Dagobert <laughs> Sigmund von Wormser, that should be a goal all by itself of Time Incorporated. Oh, all else is gravy. Yeah. And so if I go to Dagobert Sigbert and I say a couple of things, first of all, your, um, uh, your, your subordinate Peter Kwasdanovich... <laughs> I is, suspect you've already been interfering with the time stream. <laughs> I, I may have. Um, uh, Peter Kwasdanovich is a slacker and a, and a, and a, and a sloth. Um, put someone else in charge of that column, not him. And, and I think that, you know, a guy named Dagobert Sigmund von Wormser will be attentive to uh, accusations of sloth. I, I believe Dagobert Sigmund von Wormser was the dean in Animal House, wasn't he? <laughs> He, he, he was the ancestor of the Dean in Animal, Animal House, I'm sure. His, his uh, great-grandson moved to America and uh, engaged in a similarly fruitless war against Delta House. And shenanigans, yes. <laughs> right. But, um, uh, but if, if, you, uh, if you replace Kwasdanovich with, I think, almost any other Austrian general of the time, you get, uh, and you give Wormser Napoleon's actual uh, um, deployments, Wormser can win, and Wormser wants to win, and he's got German veterans with him who have beaten the French. And it's not like these uh, wussy Piedmontese. So it's not impossible that uh, von Wormser, I mean, uh, von Wormser's uh, column actually captured 
Lan and Murat and the commander of the Army of the Alps, von Kellermann, in basically a midnight march. And this was one uh, under a guy named Johann von Kleinau. So you put him uh, in charge and um, bounce uh, Kwasdanovich upstairs, tell him that he has to hold the crucial Bavarian front or something. And with uh, Kleinau and uh, Wurzer on the march, you can stop Napoleon, because Napoleon, to win in northern Italy, he's using the advantage of as much superior knowledge of the local terrain that he has, because he was literally in charge of making maps of Italy for the Army of Italy before he was promoted to be general. And he has with him uh, the guy who he called sort of the child of his victory, um, uh, 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 General later Marshal Massana, who had been a smuggler in northern Italy and knew all the roads backward and forward, and also really liked loot and to get loot, he would, I mean, he was an incredibly energetic, gifted, uh, powerful fighting general. He'd worked his way up from the enlisted ranks. He was a great Republican, uh, and, and he was a real right-hand man to Napoleon. And so I think in addition to giving Degebert Sigmund von Wormser Napoleon's deployment, what you do is you go to Massena while he is a cabin boy on a French merchant ship in French Guiana, and you lure him off the boat with promises of liquor and palm wine, and you basically maroon him somewhere in French Guiana. And if he takes to beach life as a basically a greedy fellow like Massonat would, he later married a woman who lived in Antibes and had a great time living on the beach there. Uh, I think that you can get him a, a nice uh, beach, a little beachfront uh, uh, palace in French Guiana and set him up nicely. And then, so you're removing him from history, but doing him a nice favor in the process. Exactly. You know, getting him what he wants just before he has to fight a bunch of Austrians for it. And then you can hook him up with one of the pirates who's sailing around in the in the Caribbean back in the day. And if and if I'm feeling, um, uh, it, you know, if I still have any uh, any any Tokai left, I can go hook him up with uh, Jean Lafitte in 1803 and send him up to Barataria, where he can use all of his uh, smuggling and aggression to uh, thwart the hated uh, embargo and then the hated British. So that will be uh, just a joy anyway. And my, removing Masséna from uh, Napoleon's uh, command really weakens him, because one of the great things that he has is that he can order Masséna to do pretty much anything, and Masséna will go and do it, and he'll do it yesterday. He won't lollygag around like a lot of uh, 18th century soldiers did. There's another um, great uh, general that Napoleon has. He's slightly less crucial, but he's also easily approached by my techniques because he is an Austrian, uh, or not an Austrian, he's an Irish uh, general named uh, Edward Charles Jennings Kilmaine. And uh, Kilmaine uh, had, in fact, been uh, put in prison by the Robespierre faction and was only released after the Thermidorian reaction, and I think that probably bribing uh, the uh, prison guards to let him out in 1793 and taking him to America, where he had served with General Washington and Lafayette and fallen in love with revolution and America and freedom and all great things, um, I think getting him to America and then, you know, setting him up with a uh, either a military career or an enormous... Uh, Western landholding uh, from which he could uh, thwart Indians and the hated British all the live long day would be a, a great reward for Kilmaine. And, you know, again, pensioning him off early, he's sort of Napoleon's cavalry commander. He's like the Jeb Stuart of the Italian campaign, except, of course, that he doesn't get lost all the time. <laughs> so um, because of those great maps that uh, Napoleon has made and because of uh, having Massena there to point out the roads. But I think that, again, 
as you say, uh, removing him from history by giving him what he wants, moving Kilmaine uh, out of uh, France at a time that he's really, really mad at the French Revolution, putting him in America where he can, uh, in, in, you know, in, indulge his various uh, talents to the degree that he wants to. Um, I think that that should uh, that that should be possible. He, you know, of course, after he's he's um, uh, imprisoned, he's uh, and he's released. He's all you know. I'm ready to serve the republic at any time. But you know, you suspect that he was less ready to serve the republic when it was ordering his death. So I think that if I remove Kilmaine and I remove Messena and I give Dave Gibbert Sigmund von Wormser uh, exact locations of Napoleon's troops and the Pope is not being an old stick in the mud, but is uh, fanning anti-Austrian uh, sentiment all over northern Italy and being an ally of the Directory, and again is directly bribing the Directory, not Napoleon, because the Directory sees Napoleon winning these battles and starts getting nervous that they've created a monster, and it's only because of the huge amounts of money that he's able to shovel their way from Italy that he stays in his job at all. I think we can maybe get Napoleon fired after Wormser beats him even stalemates him in one of the four or five battles that he fought against Napoleon in his uh, in his career. So th this uh, rectifying this historical footnote could have huge impact on the time stream. Yeah, because the trouble is that you know to to keep um, uh, Pius the uh, sixth unarrested, you really do have to short circuit Napoleon. And obviously, Napoleon came back from from worse than merely being removed from command in Italy. So you can even put Napoleon back in command if you need him to. Uh, March in uh, for the Marengo campaign, or you need him at the uh, at, at the the eighteen oh nine war. You can restore his, uh, his his glory and his career, but uh, you can even maybe still make him emperor. It's not at all impossible. But I think that uh, if you want to keep the Pope alive uh, a little longer, then you need to move Napoleon out of Italy too sweet. Uh, well, you know as they say, keep Pope alive. <laughs> that is what they say. Um, well, I think uh, once again that you have discharged your duties for Time Incorporated with admirable dispatch and uh, perhaps uh, quaffed uh, one or two along the way. So I think uh, we can declare your assignment a full success. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Contact us through a web of shell companies at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. 